KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Baja officials agreed to new measures to stop sewage spills in the South Bay. We came out of that meeting with a tentative plan to get emergency mitigation measures for San Antonio Los Buenos. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The county schedules a town hall meeting on monkeypox. I think that the community has learned some lessons from COVID, and so testing is becoming much more ubiquitous and accessible much more rapidly than it did with COVID. San Diego County puts a halt on allowing new residents in Veterans Village. And one of the week's Festival of Books authors tells the story of Once Upon a Forest. That's ahead on Midday Edition. You've been thinking about helping KPBS with a donation. Why not donate that extra car you no longer need? Pickup is free, and you're supporting KPBS Public Media. Here's how. Visit kpbs.careasy.org. We begin with an update on the Tijuana sewage spill that's happening at the worst possible time for summer recreation in the South Bay. The spill from a broken pipeline last week has polluted and closed beaches from the border through Imperial Beach and Coronado. It stumped an average of 32 million gallons of wastewater into the ocean each day. In yesterday's conversation with Imperial Beach Mayor Serge Dedina, he told us about a productive meeting he had with Baja officials on Tuesday night. They've hammered out a plan that may provide a way to decrease pollution from spills and save the summer. I started by asking Mayor Dedina what happened at the meeting. I met with uh, the Secretary of Economic Development and Innovation, Kurt Honnold, who's a good friend of Imperial Beach and a good friend of San Diego, longtime leader in Baja, California, as well as the new uh, Secretary of Water, Jose Armando Fernandez, who's brand new, but obviously has gotten, he's from Mexicali, got dumped right literally into this sewage disaster that's been happening over the last week. The the subject was really, um, first of all, identifying what, how the status of the current spill, so that pipe that essentially exploded above uh, Borderfield State Park near Matadero Canyon in, in Tijuana, just west of the main Tijuana downtown. And they're, apparently they're going to fix that um, by Friday. I'm meeting with the International Boundary Water Commissioner uh, this afternoon, Wednesday, to get an update on that. But that's the, the latest um, the problem is already 200, over 275 million gallons of sewage have been discharged into the Tijuana River, 30 million gallons a day. Last night, our environmental director, Chris Helmer, reported to me that the water coming out of the Tijuana River was, quote, black. That's raw sewage straight from the bowels, literally, of Tijuana. Um, and that's polluting our beach. It's, they've issued a warning for Silver Strand. But we've got a week of south swell already, south swell here, increasing south swell, south wind on the weekend. So... While Coronado's open and the Silver Strand has a warning and IV's closed, it doesn't really bode well for anything to have that water. Three to five miles of sewage in that river from the border crossing to the Tijuana River mouth sitting there for months at a time. So what does this fix entail? I mean, you have a broken pipe. Is it just patching it up? Is that what they plan to do? 
yeah, they're going to patch that up. So that's 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 the disaster of the moment. And it's a lot like what happened back in February 2017 that kind of precipitated this whole lawsuit that the city of Imperial Beach carried out in partnership with Chula Vista, the port, the city of San Diego, the state of California, and the Surfrider Foundation um, to get a settlement in terms of getting the Inter International Boundary and Water Commission to respond to these disasters in the Tijuana River Valley. And that's what's happened here. In February 2017, it took a month to get back to us about a spill that happened, discharging hundreds of millions of gallons of sewage into the river and the ocean. This time, it was immediate. Uh, the IBWC commissioner notified us immediately. We're, we're texted, we're emailed. Those, those reports are handled, uh, put up on Twitter, which is great, and posted on their website. Daily, almost twice daily updates, photos, letting us know. And even though we have this disaster, at least they're working with their counterparts on the ground in, in, in Mexico. And the commissioner of the IBWC, Maria Elena Hainer, is in the field today in Tijuana reviewing those, those uh, what's happening. So that's good, as is the Secretary of Water, he told me, is literally sleeping in, on the site, as he should be, and to, to fix that. Because it, just to be clear, again, you know, you discharge the water in the ocean, 275 million gallons or more of ocean of sewage, but until we get these super high tides, that water is going to be sitting in the Tijuana estuary, which is a national wildlife refuge in California State Park and a wetland of international importance, migrating birds, California least turn, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so it's just going to sit there stagnating. It causes a stench, but as well as it just seeps out of the Tijuana estuary into the ocean all summer and into the fall, and that's a disaster for us. So the notifications are getting better when uh, there is a sewage spill in Tijuana. Have there been any other mitigation measures that you've agreed to with Baja California officials during your meeting last night? Yeah, so uh, what, what's been really important since really the summer crisis began back in May with beach closures issued from really the border fence all the way north to the North Island Beach in, in, in Coronado, 12 miles of coastline. Uh, record beach closures for the summer. And that's because more sewage is being discharged out of San Antonio Los Buenos, six and a half miles south of the border. And with a longshore current, thanks to the scientists at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, like Falk Federson and Sarah Giddings, they actually use the supercomputer to develop sort of a model for how that, um, that sewage from six miles south of the border reaches Coronado and Imperial Beach. And so that really highlighted first the need to fix that plant and, and rehabilitate what is essentially a defunct sewage plant where they just discharge raw sewage on the beach that officials had denied was a problem before. Uh, number two, and then uh, really stop that, that process. So that's what's been killing us. But the problem was in the beginning of the summer, we met with, I met and talked to the EPA officials, IBWC officials, and, and Baja California officials, and they said it's going to take two or three years to fix that. The minute this current crisis happened last week, I got on the phone with uh, Secretary Connell, uh, the Economic Development Director, and said, we've got to fix this immediately. In the meantime, can we get some emergency measures? Those are messages I already I had relayed to the IBWC and the EPA, and everybody immediately said, yes, we need to figure this out. So last night, the idea was uh, we came out of that meeting with a tentative plan to get emergency mitigation measures for San Antonio Los Buenos. So doing what any other sewage treatment plant would do, chlorination, uh, dredging, um, hopefully aerators. If you're a civil engineer, you understand what I'm talking about. Um, anything that will help reduce the impacts from that defunct environmental disaster that's hurting beaches in Mexico, 
It's hurting beaches in Imperial Beach. Two California state parks have been closed most of the summer. Closing our national security beaches, our Navy SEAL training beaches, they can't train uh, off of Coronado. And then of course, closing Coronado, record closures, even for the winter, it would have been a record closure in Coronado. So we're, we're grateful to our colleagues in Baja California and our, the EPA and the IBWC for tentatively agreeing to that. We have to work out the details, but we continue to push for that. How specifically are measures like chlorination and dredging and installing aerators going to actually uh, mitigate these these ruptures and the pollution that they cause? Well, it's not about mitigating the ruptures. It's just about reducing the impact of what's literally raw sewage, untreated raw sewage. So trying to have some minimal temporary treatment. So when we have what's called south swell and south wind season, really probably from April through October, depending on swell and surf, you don't get those flows. If they do reach Imperial Beach or Coronado, it's just less severe. It's not just raw sewage. And I think that's that's been the issue is we're getting raw sewage. So it's having a huge impact on, on you know, the testing that's happening. And so that's the idea. It's, it's not a fix. Their plan is to, uh, there's an, an Israeli company called Otis Versa. And they're planning on doing a rehabilitation in partnership with the state of Baja California and the Mexican government and to do water reuse for that facility. And that's something we agree with. And we hope that that project will be initiated in around six months. Now, the sewage spills have been going on for a very long time. Why do you think Baja California officials are willing to start taking these mitigation measures now? Well, first, it's clear that there's been a lot of pressure from the Biden, from President Biden uh, there's been a lot of pressure um, from the own and private sector in Baja California are suffering in terms of not having any access to potable water for agricultural projects, industrial projects, housing projects. And Tijuana, frankly, is running out of water. There's a water shortage all across northern Mexico, whether it's the third largest city in Mexico, Monterey, or now the fourth largest city in Mexico, Tijuana. And so they don't have water. The Colorado River is running dry. So the nexus of climate change sewage pollution, beaches are polluted in for 12 miles in the U.S., uh, all the way south to Rosarito Beach in, in Baja California, and in Sonata, what, they've had the same issues. And so it's a drought compounded with beach pollution and lack of access to water all of a sudden puts water reuse on the table because that eliminates sewage going into the ocean, provides potable water mostly for agriculture that doesn't have access to potable water, and addresses a very real issue of the United States and Mexico negotiating access to the Colorado River and the United States providing financial incentives for Mexico to use less water from the Colorado River. So it's a win-win. Right now, everyone is losing. Let me just ask you finally, what's this summer been like so far for the Imperial Beach community? You know, it's just been awful. <laughs> it's been awful. It's been terrible. It's been terrible for, you know, I was with the Silver Strand where I used to lifeguard. My kids lifeguarded. I lifeguarded Imperial Beach as well. I walked the whole coast not surfing the coast when it's polluted. And um, everyone's just been super bombed, super depressed, um, and frankly, just mystified. Like, wait a minute, didn't, you know, there've been so many promises made, so many agreements, so many photos in the paper, tweets, et cetera, about this promise that's coming. And it just shows that this idea of delayism, this official bureaucratic delayism where things take so long to fix a problem, has to end. We have to figure out how to move quicker to deal with these climate-related and environmental disasters so that our national security doesn't suffer, our environment doesn't suffer, national wildlife refuges, and our cities don't suffer as well, and our people don't get sick. So 
I'm looking forward to making this happen, but we've all have to learn how to make these things happen quicker and make sure that the most important thing we can do is make sure we all get together at the beach. It's free, it's gorgeous, and it makes our lives better and happier. And I think we all realize we need to be happy and connected more than ever. I've been speaking with Imperial Beach Mayor Serge Dedina. Mayor Dedina, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. As an update to this interview, Mayor Serge Dedina told us that a representative of the U.S. International Boundary and Water Commission is meeting with Baja officials today to ask for emergency measures to mitigate the flow of sewage fouling beaches in the South Bay. He says the broken pipe is fixed and the sewage should stop being discharged into the Tijuana River by Friday. Monkeypox cases have more than doubled since last week in San Diego County, from 46 to now 104. This week, the County Board of Supervisors ratified a public health state of emergency. And today, the County Health Department will hold a virtual town hall on its website to answer questions about the spread of this illness. I spoke with Dr. Chris Longhurst, Chief Medical Officer at UCSD Health yesterday, and started by asking him about the FDA's emergency authorization for the vaccine Genos to be used intravenously. The federal government is looking at how to extend the supply of the vaccine, and so the subdermal use would extend it by about five-fold, turning every dose into potentially five different doses. And so that, that's a promising innovation, but it requires some change on the part of people administering the vaccine, and so it'll take a little bit of time to propagate that. I mean, does it offer the same protection? All the evidence suggests that it does offer the same protection. Uh, And now officials will look to wastewater for testing uh, for monkeypox, just like they do COVID. So does that mean monkeypox starts in the gut like COVID does? Well, it's really an exciting innovation that we've been able to find monkeypox in the wastewater. So it's a different kind of virus than COVID. It's a DNA virus, not an RNA virus. That being said, um, our wastewater monitoring has successfully been able to track this, and it correlates with increasing number of cases. How are vaccine doses uh, being prioritized right now? So we get our vaccine supply from the county, who gets it from the state, and uh, you'd have to ask them about the prioritization approach. But uh, we certainly are interested in more vaccine to help protect our vulnerable populations. And what about testing? I mean, first, how can you get tested? Yeah, testing is available from commercial laboratories. In addition, UC San Diego Health has developed an in-house assay that can actually turn around much more rapidly. And so we're excited about that innovation and we can offer that to any of our patients who are eligible. Do you think testing is as accessible as it needs to be? I think that the community has learned some lessons from COVID. And so testing is becoming much more ubiquitous and accessible much more rapidly than it did with COVID. That being said, We, of course, still like to see testing more accessible than it is today and the commercial lab turnaround time improving so it's more rapid. What do people need to know about how monkeypox is spreading and how it can be prevented? Yeah, monkeypox is spread by very close skin-to-skin contact, especially with rashes and open lesions. And so it's important to understand that and to protect yourself and prevent the spread uh, anytime there's an active rash. The good news about monkeypox is that so far it's not been a lethal disease. The bad news is it can be very painful. And in fact, we have a couple patients hospitalized in San Diego with this disease. 
County health officials have said student athletes are at a very high risk for contracting monkeypox. What do we know about the risk that children face for the virus? We do know there have been a couple pediatric cases of monkeypox in the country. And in both cases, those have been tracked back to skin-to-skin contact with an individual in the household who was already infected. What pressing questions do you still have about monkeypox as someone who works in healthcare? Well, our most pressing question is when we can get more vaccine supply. We're very anxious to provide this to our vulnerable populations. And so the sooner that we have that vaccine, the sooner we can offer it to our patients. And what are your thoughts on the messaging around monkeypox in terms of how it is spreading? I think the messaging is accurate, which is that anybody is susceptible and can get monkeypox. So it may be in one population today, and it's likely going to be in a bunch of other populations uh, in the next few weeks. And in fact, that's part of the reason that this wastewater monitoring is so important, because we can anticipate uh, through our surveillance when this is spreading. All right. Anything else you want to say or add about this? Yeah, I think the other thing I would add is that we're proud UC San Diego has taken the lead in this wastewater monitoring because we're one of the first sites in the country to be able to um, surveil our wastewater for monkeypox. And in fact, we're hoping to add additional pathogens to this wastewater monitoring in the near future. I've been speaking with Chris Longhurst, Chief Medical Officer at UCSD Health. Dr. Longhurst, thank you so very much. Hey, thank you for having me. And tonight's Monkeypox Town Hall will happen at 6 p.m. You can join by going to the county's website, sandiegocounty.com. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. San Diego County officials have stopped new admissions to Veterans Village of San Diego after multiple deaths and numerous concerns have been reported within the rehab center. Joining me now to talk about this is Jill Castellano, investigative reporter with iNewsSource. Jill, welcome back to Midday Edition. Thanks for having me on. You've been covering this story at Veterans Village for months now. Was there a particular incident that led to officials pausing admissions, or is this more of a culmination of events? It's a little bit of both. So yeah, I first published a project on um, concerns about Veterans Village. I think it was early June, so it's been a few months now. And the county has been pretty mum about um, anything they're doing to kind of step in and address concerns about this rehab center, including drug use on the campus, um, you know, issues about the quality of care being provided, issues with not enough staffing, um, poor management, things like that. And they haven't really shared anything up until now. And the most recent thing that's happened is there was another death on the campus. This was just a couple of weeks ago that's being investigated as a suspected fentanyl overdose death just 
the second suspected fentanyl overdose death this year and the fourth death on that campus this year, which is which is quite a lot. So after this most recent death, the county decided they wanted to step in and make sure that what's going on at the campus um, is safe and is best for their clients. And since they have oversight of a lot of the clients on that campus, so they're temporarily freezing admissions. And this is a this is a really big deal. It's the first time we've seen an oversight agency step in like this. How has leadership from Veterans Village responded to this pause in admissions? It's pretty interesting. Uh, Veterans Village leadership said that they had actually already approached the county about uh, not accepting new clients before this freeze went into effect. They said they've been concerned about the kind of clients the county is sending them and that they are potentially not the right clients for their program. And so that the admissions freeze was actually something that was their idea before the county um, mandated it. And the county uh, didn't really elaborate on that. Um, They said, you know, they basically stand by their statement. There are corrective actions that need to be taken at Veterans Village. So there's a little difference of opinion there about how this all got started. And so they say they were already pausing admissions before the order came down. I mean, is that true? It's really hard to know what's going on behind the scenes. Um, There's a lot that Veterans Village leadership is doing, um, and they have a lot of different oversight agencies and funding sources that they're working with. So to know uh, whether or not what they're saying uh, is a is accurate and reflects what is really going on with the county is really hard to tell at this point. Can you recap some of the recent incidents that have occurred at Veterans Village that might have led to this latest decision? Yeah, to take you back to March, this is before my project published, the probation department at San Diego County uh, raised some concerns about what was going on at this rehab center, um, telling county officials that the rehab center was not communicating with them about their clients who were placed at the rehab center, um, you know, that there were people leaving the program prematurely that they didn't know about, issues like that. They were also really concerned about staffing at the organization and that it was affecting the quality of care and the ability of the rehab center to provide treatment for people with addiction. Um, And then by April, there was a a fentanyl overdose death, um, which led to an investigation by the Drug Enforcement Administration to better understand how drugs got onto this campus, um, what the source of the fentanyl was. And by that point, you know, the county got pretty concerned. So as of early June, around the time that I published my investigation, the county issued this corrective action notice asking the rehab center to address some of their concerns. And it was only six weeks after that, by late July, that we had another overdose death at Veterans Village, which prompted a second DEA investigation. And by this time, the county was very concerned about what was going on on the campus. Um, There were a a lot of management issues. The chief operating officer of the organization had resigned. And by this time, they said, we're going to put a hold on admissions until some of these issues are addressed. On Friday, the county provided a statement that disclosed new details about efforts to bring the program into compliance. That's right. I think that's part of what's really interesting is that only now is the county coming forward and talking about all this work they've been doing behind the scenes uh, since this investigation published that I worked on to try to get this program into compliance. They issued that corrective action plan. And it sounds like from what they've told me, there's been some 
some trouble getting Veterans Village to comply with that corrective action plan. So now they're taking this next step to uh, pause admissions. Um, and the county did say they are hoping to maintain this good working relationship with Veterans Village and that into the future they can um, continue to provide good quality care. You've been reporting on severe staffing shortages at the facility. So what's behind these shortages and and how has that been impacting services? Absolutely. There is no doubt there's a staffing shortage at the organization. The cause of the shortage, it really depends who you ask. I've spoken with dozens of uh, residents and employees, former employees, and they say that the workplace environment at Veterans Village is causing people to leave, that it's very competitive, it's toxic, there's bullying, retaliation, that if you speak up about issues at Veterans Village, um, you know, that you're not taken seriously, that concerns aren't addressed, that these kinds of factors are driving the staffing shortage. Um, But the leadership of the organization points to a staffing problem across the industry that is affecting not only Veterans Village, but other rehab centers and other social service providers. And certainly there is a staffing shortage across the industry as well. So it may be a a combination of some factors specific to Veterans Village and some broader industry uh, staffing shortage that are affecting the, you know, what we're seeing on the campus there. A recent statement from the county refers to unprecedented challenges in the era of widespread fentanyl use. How is this playing a role in the challenges we're seeing at Veterans Village? Oh, the fentanyl crisis is certainly playing a role not only at Veterans Village, but across uh, the rehab industry in San Diego and elsewhere. We know that overdoses are on the rise across rehab centers um, and that Fentanyl is a big part of that. It's a synthetic opioid. It's extremely lethal. Uh, Even just a small dose of it can be lethal. And it's being mixed into a lot of other uh, drugs that people might take. So you're seeing accidental overdoses. It is truly a public health crisis. And the county actually recently declared a public health emergency because of that. So the deaths that we're seeing you know, they're, they're going on at Veterans Village, but certainly outside of Veterans Village as well. This is an epidemic that is affecting the San Diego region and elsewhere. What's the leadership at Veterans Village saying about these issues more broadly? Yeah, Veterans Village leadership has been hesitant to um, talk about what steps they're taking internally, if they are, to kind of address some of these problems. Um, they say a lot of these problems are just problems happening across the industry that may not be uh issues that are specific to Veterans Village itself. Um, They've also deflected some of the responsibility and said, actually, a lot of the reporting that I've been doing has been causing problems for them and that there are other people who have hostile motives who are out to get them. So that's really been the, um, the gist of their reaction. I've been speaking with Jill Castellano, investigative reporter with iNewsource. Jill, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. San Diego pickleball enthusiasts have found themselves in a bit of a sour situation. The game requires a special court, and there are few places to play in the city. KPBS reporter Claire Tregesser says this has led to drama. You can hear it from the parking lot. Emanating from a Chula Vista park on a warm Thursday evening is the sound of hundreds of plastic pickleballs slamming into hard asphalt. 
Men and women, young and old, gathered to play the trendy sport that has exploded in popularity in recent years. One of them is 71-year-old Mark Breezeboy. If you look at my uh, contact list on my cell phone, I probably have 400 people I've met playing pickleball. But these picklers have a, well, pickle. I'm appalled at the fact that San Diego does not jump on the bandwagon and get into the pickleball swing. Local picklers are led by Stefan Boyland, one of the founders of Pickleball SD. In pickleball, there are dinkers who make soft shots and bangers who drive the ball hard to overpower their opponents. In his dealings with the city, Boyland is definitely a banger. We've gotten a lot of lip service, but we haven't gotten a lot of action. We still have zero dedicated public pickleball courts in the city of San Diego. That's right, zero, you heard me right. Uh, we're about five years behind every other city. Boyland clearly has a mission to bring pickleball to the masses. But like many before him who have attempted to get the city of San Diego to do anything in a timely fashion, Boyland is stymied. To build new courts, he needs meetings, plans, approvals, permits, and construction. Pickleball, he says, cannot wait. So Boyland rose up, staging what amounted to an Occupy Tennis protest. Or maybe a pickle-in? You guys do know that you have to sign in and pay a fee and it's for tennis only. Yeah, we understand that. Last week, he and other picklers stormed the courts at Rob Field in Ocean Beach, set up their own pickleball net, and started to play. A tennis player called the police, and a dispute erupted over whether they had an active permit. Go! Get out of here! I don't play pickleball! No charges were filed. The city wants both of the sports to thrive, but not without hindering one over the other. Tim Graham is a spokesman for the Parks Department and says the city has no plans to change the tennis courts at Rob Field to pickleball. The city is trying to find ways to provide as many pickleball courts as possible um, without displacing other organizations. Options include taking over unused shuffleboard courts. Apparently, there's no shuffleboard lobby in the city to protest plus striping new pickleball courts on basketball or other hard surfaces. And the city has brought in a national expert to interview both sides and come up with a pickleball tennis peace treaty. Um, I understand um, that once people got into this sport, it's pretty addictive and people seem to really, really love it. But, you know, what, what the city's doing, it's best to provide these services as quickly as we can. At noon on a recent Friday, only a few courts at Rob Field were being used by tennis players. While outsiders might wonder why they can't share tennis courts with pickleball, that just won't work, says Todd Sprigg. If you play pickleball, it has a very different sound, okay? And, and so those sports are not necessarily compatible next to each other. Plus, the lines on the court are different, the nets are different, and players would want the courts at the same time. Sprague says he agrees there is a need for more pickleball facilities in San Diego. But cannibalizing tennis facilities when tennis is growing and has grown doesn't make any sense at all. So the city is left working on a compromise that doesn't involve cannibalism. 
Joining me is KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. Claire, welcome. Thank you. So I've heard pickleball described as a combination of tennis, ping pong, and badminton. How does a pickleball game differ from a game of tennis? Well, there's um, several different ways. First of all, the court is smaller. It's um, half the size of a tennis court. And it's played with basically, as you say, wiffle balls, like plastic balls with little holes in them. And not really rackets like tennis rackets, but more kind of like a, a ping pong ball paddle where it's just a flat a flat board. And then the rules are different. It's mostly played with uh, doubles, um, but it can be played with singles as well. And I think, um, you know, a big aspect to it is that it's it's kind of a social game because people are closer together and it really can be played by people of all ages and all athletic abilities because there isn't necessarily as much running and, you know, hard on your knees as something like tennis. Why is it called pickleball? <laughs> well, um, I found this out through doing this story. It's actually, even though it's become this kind of recent craze, it actually was started back in 1965. Um, and they called it pickleball because they were using the word or the term pickle boat, which is a hastily assembled rowing crew, um, because it's kind of a sport that's cobbled together from all these different parts of badminton, tennis and wiffle ball. Now, there must be private pickleball courts. or Where else have these picklers been playing all the time? Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I think that some people even have courts at their houses, and then there are places like uh, racket clubs and, and private places where people can play. Pickleball was actually um, a, a story in The New Yorker recently, and they mentioned uh, this racket club up in Encinitas, where during early COVID, there were courts were so booked that people were calling at all hours of the day and night to uh, try and reserve a, a place to play pickleball. But you'll have to pay for those courts, right? Right. That's that's exactly right. You'll, you'll have to pay for those courts, whereas, um, you know, on public courts that are just at a park or a, a public place in San Diego, you can play for free. There are more than 30 public tennis court locations in San Diego, some with more than 10 courts apiece. Why can't there be a rotating schedule for both pickleball players and tennis players on city tennis courts? Right. So I asked about this because to a, a non-player, it seems like kind of an obvious solution. I, one thing is that the pickleball courts do have different uh, striping on the ground. And so even if they put that striping down and then, you know, you could switch back and forth between playing tennis and pickleball, I guess it makes it difficult for um, for tennis courts to host tournaments because then they don't really have that official um, striping, you know, tennis striping that, that you would need for, for a tournament. Um, and then, you know, I guess other reasons are that players might want the courts at the same time. Um, and one, one tennis player told me that the noise from pickleball um, is quite loud. And so tennis players, I guess, don't really want pickleball players nearby uh, while they're playing because the noise is so different and maybe is distracting. In your reporting, did you get the sense... There's a bit of tennis snobbery affecting the pickleball issue. <laughs> um, maybe it seems like that a little bit. You know, this 
at like anything that's that's maybe kind of a trend or a craze, then there are people on the other side who are saying, you know, what's so great about this thing? Or it's just, you know, some kind of flash in the pan thing that's that's not going to last. Um, and, you know, I think because tennis is quieter and maybe involves more running, um, the people who play tennis maybe look down a little bit on on pickleball, although they wouldn't really say that, you know, with a microphone in their face. But but I kind of get that sense that 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 might be going on a little bit. Now, the pickleball takeover at Rob Field was broken up by law enforcement. What is their next move? Right. Well, and so this is, you know, something that I've asked the the pickleball organizers because it seems clear that the city is giving them a hard no. And, you know, there's this whole backstory with this with this issue where there's the Peninsula Tennis Club who has a permit for uh, the Rob Field courts. I guess that permit lapsed during COVID um, because depending on who you ask, it might have been just, you know, the city was not keeping up on on renewing all of these permits. And so the pickleball people are contending that there actually is no permit and that's why they should be able to play there. And that's why they kind of staged this uh, Occupy Tennis protest, as I called it in the story. Um, but the city is saying, no, the the Peninsula Tennis Club gets to keep the Rob Field courts and that's the final answer. And so, you know, I asked the, the pickleball people, well, they're saying no. So, you know, what are you going to do next? And they're kind of not really giving up on it. I think they're they're saying that they still want those Rob Field courts. Um, they're not letting it go. And at the same time, they're, you know, very vocally uh, pressuring the city to to get on the swing of things, as they say, and, and add more courts in other places. And, you know, the city spokesman told me that they're working as fast as they can and they're striping basketball courts and shuffleball courts in different places throughout the city. Um, where, you know, they can add more pickleball courts that are not at Rob Field. Okay, I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Claire Chargasser. Claire, thank you. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation. Presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. A marmot and a bird face the aftermath of a destructive wildfire. That's the premise of San Diego author Pam Fong's children's book, Once Upon a Forest. Capturing a world steeped in nature, the book's story is told solely through images with strategic use of color, a powerful message, and hope for the future. She is one of the local authors attending the Union Tribune Festival of Books on August 20th. I spoke to Pam Fong earlier this year. Here's that interview. Despite being a book for young children, your book really deals with some serious themes. Um, Tell us more about the book and why you felt a picture book was the best way to tell this story. Well, I think kids understand the world that they live in and they see kind of the news and all the forest fires that are going on and they're processing it themselves just like we do as adults. 
And so I really wanted to write a book that helps them do that, helps them realize that, yes, forest fires are devastating, but that there's hope and that nature does renew itself, sometimes with a little help from forest creatures. But I thought it was a message that would help children and adults reflect on kind of our uh, the consequences of humans um, when they come, when they interact with nature. So in your process of telling these stories, do you first come up with words or pictures? It depends on the story. Each story is different. I have stories where the words come to me first. Maybe it's just a sentence or maybe it's a whole paragraph. Sometimes it's just the image. It could be one character or it could be a scene. For this one in particular, the marmot, the main hero, um, came to me first, and um, I just wanted to draw this character. It was just calling for me to draw it, and I didn't have a story around it, but once it kind of took shape, I had a little conversation with this drawing, and the rest of the story followed. What originally interested you in picture books? You know, it's such a huge responsibility to inspire kids when they're at this age, when they're thinking about the world and they have unlimited possibilities. And so it's a daunting responsibility, but one that I felt like, you know, I would love to have just a little hand in because picture books were so influential in my life. I came over from Taiwan at a very, very young age and we didn't speak the language. So The library was kind of the great equalizer for my family. We went there and then, and everyone was quiet. No one spoke. So we were all kind of um, in the same boat, you know, just being quiet in the library. And there I discovered picture books. And of course, I didn't know the language enough. So I gravitated to the picture books that were wordless because I could put the story together myself. And that was a great comfort to me. It made me feel more included and less alone in this new country. In telling your stories through pictures and rich colors, I mean, does that influence the stories that you like to tell? Yes, it does. I think for this one in particular, I kept it mostly black and white because when you go into a forest scene, there is so much to take in. There are so many layers and the forest goes in so deep. It's very, very hard to to capture all those little details without uh, losing focus on the main characters. So this was a very conscious decision to keep it black and white, to leave a lot of white space. And to give the color only to um, the elements of nature, which is the third character in this book. You have the marmot and the bird and then nature itself. And so I didn't want nature being lost in all of that, especially when you're trying to create a forest scene and there's so much to look at. Mm -hmm. And being that this is an audio interview, I urge listeners to go to kpbs.org to see the visual imagery from this book for themselves. How would you describe the art style and why did you choose it for Once Upon a Forest? I tend to draw realistically using values. I love black and white, although a lot of my other works, my other books are in full color, but they have a minimal palette. So I like limiting myself to a limited palette in order to create harmony in the images. I don't know. I would describe it as a a little realistic, but still playful in that uh, illustrative quality I'm trying to capture. How do you approach tackling serious topics such as climate change and habitat destruction uh, without overwhelming little readers? 
Once Upon a Forest is not really about a forest fire. It's about the hope that happens afterwards. You never really see the fire. Um, you see smoke. And so you never really see, you know, the blaze. The smoke is also very wispy and it's surrounded by a lot of white space. So in that way, I'm hoping that, you know, the kids will get it without having to, to see it. And then we go quickly, quickly into cleaning up and restoring the forest. So the fire scene really is uh, reserved for one spread. So it's very limited. I'm curious, what are some children's books and authors that you loved as a child? Oh, so um, I discovered this one book. It's called Max, and it's by Italian illustrator. I can't recall his name off the top of my head. It's a wordless picture book. And he did a series and it's all based on this character, uh, a little fuzzy character named Max. And I discovered this in the library when I was very young. And I picked up this book. I checked it out so many times that eventually they decommissioned it because I had worn it out so much. And I kind of grew up and I forgot. I, I, I always remembered Max, but I didn't, I didn't have a copy of the book. And fast forward 28 years and we have the internet. And I thought one day, gosh, I'm going to do, do a quick search and see if I can find this book again. And so I looked up Fuzzy Creature Max and his face came up and I rediscovered that this creature was a marmot of all things. And so I was just kind of blown away. So I feel like maybe a marmot has been talking to me from a very young age. <laughs> I think so. So what do you hope children will ultimately gain from this book? One of my main reasons for um, spending so much time to create this book and drawing it in the way I did was that I wanted them to want to go out into the forest. I'm an avid hiker myself, and I know how much walking through the forest and walking on mountain trails has given me. And I hope that kids get excited about maybe going out and seeing forest scenery, maybe running into a marmot and looking at uh, nature from this very, very special place that is the forest. So I, I paid particular attention to trying to create um, an inviting scene that kids will want to explore in their real world. That was San Diego author Pam Fong talking about her children's book, Once Upon a Forest, which is out now. And Pam Fong will be at the Union Tribune Festival of Books August 20th. For more information, you can go to our website, kpbs.org. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.